Reacting to the world's best science. The Naked Scientist News Flash. Hello and welcome to the Naked Scientist News Flash, where we take a weekly look at what's hot in the world of science. This week's episode is brought to you by Helen Scales, Mira Senthalingam, and by me, Ben Valsler. Coming up, how a once lost Galapagos tortoise could be brought back from extinction. There is a possibility that we could bring back the Floriana tortoises. There could be a way of captively breeding the living tortoises until they just contain the Floriana genes. How gold nanoparticles shine a light on how antibodies travel from breast milk to baby's blood. So the gold tags we were using were actually 55 or 60 gold atoms. So every time we had a transport event we could visualize that by one of these gold tags. And we'll also be hearing about a new drug facility in Uganda that aims to supply people across the African continent with low-cost drugs for HIV and AIDS. They were originally costing about $14,000 when the factory starts producing them. We shall be buying them at $15, and we expect everybody who needs them to be able to access them. That's all on the way. Now, first off, news from the world of medical science with this week researchers who have taken a step closer to using gene therapy to help people with blindness see again. Arthur Sidisian from the University of Pennsylvania led a team who've been looking at therapies that aim to help people who suffer from Leber congenital amaurosis, or LCA, which is a rare inherited form of blindness. And essentially, studies in animals have shown that what's causing this disease is a mutation in a particular gene called RPE65, which messes around with something called the retinal cycle, which is essentially the part in your in your eye where vitamin A is regenerated and it's the key part of essentially converting light that hits your retina into nerve signals that are sent to the brain. So when this mutated gene is inherited, it knocks out part of that cycle and vision is impaired. Now they've been using gene therapy to replace this RPE65 gene in animals and they've actually been very successful in restoring vision in laboratory mice and things like that. The way they do this is by using a genetically modified virus, an adeno-associated virus, which is injected into the eye and essentially it delivers a good version of that faulty gene so that it fills in that missing part of the retinoid cycle and brings vision back. Now the good news is that they've started trying this out on people. Now these are just really early stage clinical trials but they've already shown that the treatment is safe to use and it can lead to a moderate improvement in vision. Now three patients with LCA were injected with the treatment and after 30 days all three of them had shown quite an improvement in their eyesight. Now it seems the therapy is increasing the activity of cone cells which are the part of the eye responsible for seeing colour by up to 50 times and that the activity of rods, the parts of your eye that are responsible for night vision, would actually increase in their activity by 63,000 times, which is amazing. But while this is really encouraging news for people with this condition, the results are actually still far from perfect. One real problem is that the patients took a very long time to get accustomed to the dark. You must all be familiar with them, how long it takes you to get used to sitting in a darkened room and after a while you, you can see things that you couldn't before and that's your eye adapting to the low light levels and in people with normal vision that takes about an hour up to an hour um, but in these people with uh, the treated the, the people who've taken this gene therapy it can take up to eight hours so it's it is happening but very very slowly in these people so it might not be perfect but it certainly holds some some hope for the future that this can be developed for people suffering from this this inherited condition Fantastic. Well, it's good to hear that we have various treatments coming up because not too long ago, our own Mira Senthalingam was reporting on a stem cell patch for people with macular degeneration. So it looks like there's a lot of good work going on into making blind people be able to see.
again. Now, I don't have this problem because I'm a cyclist and I don't have a car, but it does seem that if you drive a car at the moment, regardless of whether it's petrol or diesel or whatever you're putting in, it's costing you a lot more money than it used to. But it now looks like subjecting your diesel engine to a strong electric current could actually improve the efficiency by about 10%, which could save you a great deal of money. Internal combustion engines are getting more efficient with each generation of cars, but we're still a very long way off them being perfect. But now researchers at Temple University in Philadelphia have found a way to make diesel engines more efficient by making the droplets of fuel injected into the engine much smaller. Now, a diesel engine works by spraying a fine mist of fuel into a chamber where the pressure of a rising piston causes it to explode. It burns. And when it burns, the fuel and its products massively expand and the expansion of gases pushes the piston back and that powers the vehicle. Now, the smaller the fuel droplets are when they're sprayed into the chamber, the more efficiently the fuel can be burnt and so the more miles you'll get from one tank of fuel. Writing in the journal Energy and Fuels, Rongia Tao and colleagues report on, ele- on an electrostatic device which could be fitted to a standard engine and subjects the, f- the fuel to a strong electric field shortly before it passes into the fuel injector. They call it an atomizer, just like you have with perfume and aftershave. Now, this gives each droplet of fuel a negative charge, and because like charges repel, the droplets then repel one another and form a finer mist as they're sprayed into the combustion chamber. That makes the engine more efficient and improves the fuel mileage considerably. They've shown it works well on two engines so far, and they're confident it can be adjusted to work with existing engines as well as new ones, but also engines running on diesel or petrol, or even things like biodiesel or petrol mixed with ethanol, or even running on kerosene. So it's very promising. And I take it that this the level of electricity needed for that isn't going to actually outweigh the, the efficiency of, of, you know, because you said it was a very large um, electrical current needed. It's, it can't be that much, I think. Well, it's a fairly strong current in the, well, a fairly strong electric field in the area where it's implied but actually it runs on something like 0.1 watts so it's a very low energy consumption which was something they were worried about and something they've managed to get around Awesome, well it does seem like we need as anything we can to help improve our efficiency in life at the moment but I'm going to hop across to the world of the animals now This week saw the return of Galapagos Day which is an annual event held by the Galapagos Conservation Trust and this year there was some good news which is a species of giant tortoise that was thought to have gone extinct over 100 years ago might in fact not be lost forever Now a team of scientists from from Yale University in the States have extracted traces of DNA from specimens of extinct Galapagos tortoises, which are kept in museums. And they've discovered that a species that used to live on Floriana Island, which is one of the Galapagos Islands, is actually genetically distinct from all the other ones that are still around. Now, those results, which were published in the PNAS journal this week by Giselle Kikoni, um, you might think they're not that groundbreaking, that yes, a species should be different from all the others. But the actual, the, the exciting part of their study is the fact that some of the other um, tortoises that are still alive in the Galapagos are actually turn out to be close relatives of those ones that went extinct on Floriana Island all those years ago. Now in fact the Floriana Island tortoises were went, thought to have gone extinct within 15 years of Charles Darwin's visit back in 1835 um, and it was these giant tortoises which were one of the things that really got him thinking about about the theory of natural selection and evolution and, and so on and it's not just because these things grow to a ton in size and can live for over a century which I think would get any of us thinking but it's more the fact that um, he noticed that on different islands there were different types of these tortoises and that got him thinking about the way they're changing in different environments that are isolated from each other but sadly because partly because of their great lumbering 
size and lack of speed, these tortoises really have suffered at the hand of man. And four out of 15 of the species are now are now extinct, including the Floriana tortoises. Um, but what Kikoni and her team have discovered is, is that the tortoises living on Isabella Island, another one of the Galapagos, yeah, as I say, are rel- relations um, of the extinct Floriana species, which they think actually what happened was probably a few of the Floriana tortoises found their way to Isabella, maybe even because whaling uh, ships, which was one of the real reasons why these tortoises went extinct, was because the whalers ate them and took them with them when they needed to go back overseas. Perhaps they thought, we've got a few too many tortoises, and they dumped one off on Isabella. Um, and they actually interbred with the Isabella tortoises. And so, in fact, half of the genes of the Isabella tortoises are actually the Floriana genes, so they're living on. So what does this mean? Maybe there is a possibility that we could bring back the Floriana tortoises. There could be a way of captively breeding these actual, the living um, tortoises and get rid of the uh, the Isabella genes, if you like, until they just entirely um, contain the Floriana genes. But... Should we be doing that kind of thing? I mean, I think, obviously, it's a very important thing to think about animals going extinct and, and the ways that humans are, are affecting that. And obviously, the tortoises are particularly special because of the influence of, uh, on Darwin and so on. But it seems like an, an, an awful lot of money to think about spending on one species when there's so many other species that haven't yet gone extinct that maybe we should be spending our money on. Um, so I don't know. But I think it, at least it's, it opens up the possibility that maybe extinction isn't forever. But I think, really, we have to think about the fact that we have to stop so many things going extinct in the first place. Very true, yes. Well, a species that have surprised us recently is, in fact, honeybees. And it seems that honeybees are capable, we know they're capable of finding nectar. We know they can tell other bees where to go through the medium of the waggle dance, which is a beautiful thing to watch. But now, scientists at the Australian National University in Canberra have shown that bees can actually count up to four. Writing in the journal Animal Cognition, Mary Dacker and Mandiam Srinisavan uh, tested the bees' ability to count by training them to receive a reward, some food, after passing a specific number of landmarks. Now, they changed the distance between the landmarks, so the bees weren't just learning the distance to the food, but specifically the number of landmarks that they must have passed. Now, interestingly, they were capable of counting landmarks that they had never encountered before, so even if they changed what the landmarks looked like, it was the number of landmarks that was important. Now, that shows that they're capable of transferring the count to a novel object, so in other words, they can count an object regardless of what it is. They tested the bees' numerical abilities using a tunnel placed seven metres from a hive. It was four metres long, 20 centimetres wide and 20 centimetres high and they placed identical landmarks along the tunnel initially and they hid a food reward behind whichever landmark they chose. They kept varying things so that the bees weren't just learning, instead they had to actually count. And they changed things so that the bees could only see one landmark at a time. This means they must be aware of how many have come before the one that they're on in order to know where they need to go now. So they must keep a mental tally. Now, furthermore, although the experiment shows that bees could count up to four landmarks, interestingly, it fell down dramatically after four objects. In fact, bees can count up to four, but not count up to five. But they haven't got any fingers to count on anyway, so I know we can count to ten. (laughs) That's very true. We can count to ten, and possibly even a little bit further. Now, also in the news this week, researchers at the Howard Hughes Medical Institute at Caltech have followed an antibody as it passes through the wall of the stomach. Now, this must happen for a mother to pass on immunity to a baby through breast milk. In order to see what happened, they attached nano-sized particles of gold to antibodies that they then fed to rats. Now, Professor Pamela Bjorkman was leading the work and joins us now. Hi, Pamela. Hello. So, Pamela, how did you actually do this? How did you see these antibodies passing through the stomach wall? Well, 
First, we used a technique called electron tomography. So normally, electron microscopy, you take images of cells and you see their organelles that you can usually achieve um, nanometer resolution. So you can see membranes and other things like that. But by attaching the nanogold particle to the antibody, we could trace it as it was taken up by the intestinal cells, and we could watch which parts of the inside of the cell it progressed as it was going across the cell. Now, a lot of the time with these sorts of experiments, people use something like a fluorescent tag, which they attach to whichever chemical they're trying to follow. Was, would this have been possible, or is it vital that you use this nanoscale gold? A fluorescent tag wouldn't be visible in an electron microscope because what, you're, what you need to see there is very electron-dense particles. So the gold tags we were using were actually 55 or 60 gold atoms that were actually attached, and that is electron-dense enough that with a little bit of an enhancement procedure, we could see those. So every time we had a transport event, we could visualize that by one of these gold tags. So we were actually looking at a single receptor bound to an antibody in each case, and it was visible by the gold tag. So once the antibody binds to the receptor, how does it get through the cell? How is it pushed through? Well, it comes in through what's called receptor-mediated endocytosis, so it binds to its receptor, which is on the side of the intestine that faces when milk comes into the gut, and so it binds there. It goes inside the cell into these membranous compartments that are like little, uh, they're very strange shapes, but they're tubes or they're like big spherical balls. So it goes inside those, and those are acidic, and this receptor binds very tightly to it to the antibody at acidic pH. So these vesicles wander around inside the cell, and then when they reach the side of the cell that faces the bloodstream, which is where they eventually want to dump their cargo, these little tubules fuse with that membrane, and then they're exposed to the pH of blood, which is slightly basic, and at that pH, the antibody rapidly falls off, enters the newborn's bloodstream, and the result is that it acquires its mother's antibodies. So it's the difference in pH between inside your, your gut and inside your bloodstream that actually exactly. makes this a one-way process. Exactly, yeah. And so why is this so important? Why do we need to transfer antibodies from breast milk to blood? Well, it turns out that humans, human babies don't develop a fully functional immune system um, until later, and it's very helpful to them to have some of their mother's antibodies. So it's like a passive immunization. It's like the mother vaccinates them with antibodies against whatever, whatever pathogen she encountered in her environment, and that's directly relevant to what the baby will experience. So it's been immunized by its mother. And could this be the same mechanism through which things like HIV are transferred from mother to baby? Well, HIV is transferred through breast milk, that's true. But actually, there's a little bit of a technicality here. Most of the types of antibodies that are in breast milk are not the types that are transferred by the receptor we were studying, in human breast milk anyway. So we were studying the transfer of IgG antibodies, and most of the antibodies that are in human breast milk are IgA. So rodents transfer IgG through breast milk. Humans transfer IgG before birth, mostly across the placenta. So much of the antibodies that humans acquire is before they're even born. It's by a transfer across the placenta. And then human fetuses 
swallow amniotic fluid, and it's possible that they transfer maternal IgG to their bloodstream through the swallowing of this amniotic fluid that contains the mother's antibodies. But I don't think that, that humans actually transfer, human babies don't acquire HIV through this mechanism. Okay, fantastic. Well, thank you ever so much, Pamela. That was Professor Pamela Bjorkman from Caltech explaining how you can use gold or tiny particles of gold to shine a light on biological processes. You're listening to the Naked Scientist News Flash. Now, some news that could benefit people with HIV or AIDS across Africa. Treatment for the virus is with antiretroviral drugs, or ARVs, which stop HIV from growing in the body. Although ARVs don't actually cure the disease, they can stop it from progressing, helping to keep people healthier for longer. The problem is that ARVs are expensive, meaning that many people who need them in Africa can't access them. But that could all be about to change, thanks to a new factory opening in Uganda. Mira Senthalingam spoke to Esther Nakazi, a journalist for the East African in Kampala. The drug factory that has been opened in Uganda has been opened in a suburb of Kampala called Luzira, and it's going to produce ARVs, or antiretroviral drugs, for HIV patients. And uh, they start production of drugs in November. Everybody in Kampala is excited about this new initiative because it's going to provide cheap drugs to people who are suffering from HIV. And how beneficial do you think this factory is going to be? So, for example, how many drugs will it produce a day? The factory will be producing about 2 million tablets per day. And uh, the people in Chemicals think they will supply the drugs to people in the neighboring countries like Kenya, Tanzania and Rwanda and even beyond East Africa because the king of Swaziland was here recently and Swaziland is one of those countries that has a high HIV prevalence and uh, he has expressed interest in uh, making an order for his country. That's a lot of ground being covered by just one factory. Are there any others in Africa? I know that there's a factory in South Africa and Uganda could be the second country in Africa to start producing this drug. But looking closer to home, how important is this factory to the local community in Uganda? The community has been suffering. The country has been suffering. Very few people have been accessing the drugs because they've been very expensive. But we think that uh, because the production is now in Uganda and the government is subsidizing them, then many people will be able to access the drugs. They were originally costing about uh, $14,000. That was in the 1990s, and that was pretty expensive. Right now, uh, when the factory starts producing them, we shall be buying them at uh, $15, and we expect everybody who needs them to be able to access them. That's a dramatic reduction in cost. ARV drugs need to be used in combinations of greater than one type of drug. How many drugs will people be able to get for these $15? Oh, that would be a triple therapy. That means these are three drugs that have to be taken. The, the triple therapy is good to be taken. If you take one drug or two drugs, you definitely get resistance very quickly. But with the triple therapy, it takes longer for, for a person to get resistance to the drugs. And how long would a $15 supply last? $15 per month for these triple therapy drugs. The combinations of drugs also need to be trialled and actually tailored for each individual, don't they? 
Yeah, it is. It is tailored to each individual person. And um, we have had a lot of uh, people getting resistant uh, after taking the first-line uh, drug therapy. The factory now is producing some second-line drug therapies that many of the Ugandans take, and that includes uh, drugs like Chimune and uh, Nevirapin. How many people in Uganda were actually able to access these drugs before the factory opened? Before the factory opened, only about 130,000 people were able to access drugs, and that is about only 40, 42% of the people who need them. In actual fact, about 300,000 people need uh, the life-prolonging medication to be able to, to survive properly. And most of them, we are getting them under the PEPFAR initiative. That is President Bush's presidential emergency plan for AIDS relief. Right now, we expect that the 60% who are not able to access them will be able to access them when they go down to $15 per month. But is that still an affordable price for the majority of people suffering with HIV? I cannot say it is uh, affordable to all of them, like the 60%, but at least it is a step forward. Uganda is a very poor country and a lot of people live below the poverty line, below a dollar a day. But uh, we still think that with time, as uh, the factory keeps on producing them, the government will subsidize them will subsidize them and they will the price will actually fall lower than that. But for, for the $15, that's a big achievement for the moment. That was Esther Nakazi from the East African, telling naked scientist Mira Senthalingam how a new factory in Uganda could reduce the cost of drugs to treat HIV and AIDS, making them more affordable to those that need them. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. The Naked Scientist News Flash this week featured Helen Scales, Pamela Bjorkman, Mira Senthalingam and Esther Nakazi, and I'm Ben Valsler. We'll be back with another roundup next week. The Naked Scientist News Flash, reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.